1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Randolph Nessie to the show today to discuss his recent book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. Randolph M. Nessie is a professor of life sciences and an Arizona Foundation professor at Arizona State University, where he's the founding director of the Center for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. Among his many publications is the book, Why We Get Sick The New Science of Darwinian Medicine. Randolph Nessie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Renee. So glad to have a chance to talk with you.
0: Was there someone or something that profoundly influenced your intellectual life?
1: Gosh, in, even during my psychiatry residency, I was reading lots about ethology and the like, and I thought it was quite interesting. Um, but uh, it wasn't until I met George Williams that my life really changed. He turned out to be this evolutionary biologist I met. And we shared an interest about this question about So why do we age? Why didn't natural selection make us live forever? Um, And he's turned out to be my mentor. I didn't know at the time that he was one of the world's great biologists who had really transformed the study of evolution back in the late part of the 20th century. So he was my huge inspiration and, and collaborator to develop the field of evolutionary medicine.
0: And what impact do you hope this particular book will have? So the new book really takes the
1: ideas from evolutionary medicine and applies them to psychiatry, my home field. And that's how I got into this, Renee. I was so frustrated being a young psychiatrist in a university that my friends were either becoming behaviorists or psychoanalysts or neuroscientists. And I wanted to find some way to put it all together. Plus, it felt to me like something was missing. Uh, When I was reading ethology and animal behavior, it was all based on evolution. And in psychiatry, nothing was even mentioned about evolution. And as the further I went into it, the further I realized that a whole fundamental scientific foundation was simply missing and had a lot to offer.
0: Hmm. Well, your book is, uh, is called Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. Now, um, a high mood, a good mood feels good. It's optimistic. It fosters creativity. Why wouldn't it be good to be a little hypomanic all the time? You know,
1: it really seems like good mood is good stuff, right? And yeah. bad mood bad mood is abnormal and bad. I mean, it seems ridiculous to suggest that feeling down in the dumps and hopeless and lack of motivation could possibly be useful. But, you know, emotions would not exist unless they were useful. And positive emotions and negative emotions are both equally useful you know i came to this renee from studying anxiety disorders we helped create one of the world's first anxiety disorders clinics at the university of michigan and there i was treating patient after patient hundreds of patients with anxiety disorders and finally i started realizing why does anxiety exist at all and it takes only about two seconds to say well it's useful but then the next question is so why is there so much excess anxiety and that led me down this long path to try to figure out how natural selection shaped the brain mechanisms that regulate anxiety, leaving so many of us with so much useless, useless, excessive, awful anxiety. And it, we, we should go down this route a little bit before we try to do mood, because mood is much harder to figure out than, than trying to figure out why we have anxiety.
0: Okay. Uh, well, you write about the positive and negative, or desirable and undesirable features, uh, evolve together, and and it's the combination that results in our vulnerability to disease or to mental and emotional disorders. Tell us how that works.
1: You know, this goes all the way back to the beginning of life. If organisms are going to do anything, they need to go towards good stuff and away from bad stuff. Even bacteria do that. Um, and, of course, when you get to our primate ancestors, they're very good at you know, going away from danger and going towards food and sex and other kinds of things. So that's a fundamental division in aspects of the brain and, and motivation. And it seems like good emotions are good for us. It's just an illusion that that those are good because when you're feeling bad, you're in a bad situation. That's why it seems like bad emotions are bad for us. But imagine someone who has an anxiety disorder, not of too much anxiety, but of too little anxiety. Uh, Isaac Marks and I call that hypophobia. And it's a very common anxiety disorder, but these patients never come for treatment because they don't feel bad. They just don't worry at all. They don't get nervous about anything. So where do you find such patients? Well, you find them in unemployment lines and divorce court and jail and the morgue uh, because they just do wild and crazy things without necessary kinds of protective emotions. Um, Anxiety is good for you in the right amounts. But this immediately brings up the question about, hey, most of the anxiety we experience is way too much. And that's a deep evolutionary question. Why didn't natural selection do a better job?
0: And a lot of anxiety is related to things that are not obviously dangerous. Social anxiety, for example, or the big one, public speaking anxiety,
1: Right. How did natural selection shape that? And it really does seem useless. You get up in front of a crowd or you're doing an interview with a radio person from <laughs> across the ocean and right. you know you get nervous and your mouth goes dry and you can't talk right. Um, why? And it turns out that, you know, those things like a dry mouth when you're trying to speak or your trembling hands when you lift your water at the podium to your lips. Um, th- those are just side effects of a system that isn't all that sophisticated in terms of customizing the kinds of anxiety to the kinds of situations. Uh, it turns out that your dry mouth and your trembling hands are really good when you're in a dangerous situation where you need to run away fast. Um, but those are just kind of side effects from the other situations. But we should go into a minute about how natural selection shapes this mechanism that turns anxiety on and off. Does it turn it on only when it's useful? And, and there I use the example of a smoke detector. We all have smoke detectors in our houses that hardly ever go off because there's a fire, because a fire is a really rare thing. Uh, but they often go off when we burn toast. And that's very annoying. Um, some people turn off their smoke detectors because of that, but that's really dumb. It's worth it uh, to have a smoke detector have a lot of false alarms because you want to make absolutely sure it goes off every single time there's a real fire. And the exact same principle applies to how natural selection shaped our system for regulating panic attacks and anxiety i mean a panic attack is nothing more than an emergency reaction that can save your life if it goes off when you are faced with life-threatening danger and so should it go off when you might hear a noise behind a rock on the african savannah that might be a lion and the answer is well it depends how likely is it that that noise is a lion and how likely is it that it's just some other small animal Um, What if the chances are 50%? Oh, 50%, you should run, uh, because if you don't run, you might die. Uh, What if it's 1%? Was it wise to run, or should you stick around and get your water from the watering hole after all? It turns out you can calculate the optimal amount of noise or uh, the optimal likelihood of a lion being there that makes you run. And if the cost of a false alarm, a cost of a panic attack, is, is something like 100 And the cost of not having a panic attack, if it's really a lion there, is a thousand times greater. Then you should run as fast as you can every time there's a chance of a lion greater than the one in a thousand. And this smoke detector principle has turned out to be one of my more useful contributions. Because it helped me and my patients realize that false alarms in that system are absolutely normal, even though they're useless. And that's just such a profound implication for the anxiety that we all experience.
0: Yes. And when when you explain it in terms of what is likely to support uh, continued living, at least long enough to reproduce, on the savannas in Africa, that makes a lot of sense. If we switch our focus to the current day or even the current century or two, Uh, we find that things like depression and anxiety are on the rise. Now, that can't be evolution, can it? Because evolution really takes a very long time.
1: So, so, Renee, maybe they're on the rise. Um, Part of my work has been at the Institute for Social Research doing epidemiology. And if you actually look at the same questions asked of the same population 30 years later, It doesn't appear that there are dramatic increases in anxiety and depression. There are some studies from the UK just over the last 10 years that suggest young people who use cell phones a lot might have more depression than before. But, you know, the idea that everything is worse now Um, is something that people have said in almost every century. Even the Romans were going on about how these modern times, they said in Rome, (laughs) are so bad for our children who are wanton and and not doing their work the way they should. So I think that's a very—on the other hand, it might be. Especially, I'm very concerned about social media, creating uh, ideals that we can never reach, and making everybody feel bad about themselves because everybody else is posting all the good stuff about their lives. So that, that remains very possible. Uh, but it's not as if there's a whole lot more depression now than there used to be. It looks like every place in the world always, people have had high mood and low mood, and periods of anxiety, and periods of calm, and periods of loving people, and periods of hating people. These are built-in uh, modules that really go off in the right circumstances. And a lot, how common those are depends a lot on the circumstances.
0: Randy, I was wondering since evolution takes a very long time, uh, how is it that we hear reports over and over again from very credible sources that the rates of depression in particular, but also anxiety and other emotional and uh, mental disorders are on the rise?
1: You know, there is dramatic evidence that is credible that there are big differences between different countries. For instance, the USA is the absolute world leader in depression. Um, If you compare the United States to Japan and Korea, um, the rates are eight times higher. So there's something going on. But what is it? I don't think it's genetic differences, it might have something to do with diet probably has a lot to do with family structure and work structure and and the security of people's lives. But I think this is the single most important kind of research that could possibly be done for understanding depression. If we could make the rates of depression in the USA get down to those in Japan and Korea, we would do more good than all the treatment we're doing for all the patients in the entire country. It would be, it would be fabulous. Anxiety, somewhat the same picture, but not quite so much. But there's a larger illusion, I think, Renee, that's very prevalent, and that is that these modern times in general uh, have caused lots more anxiety and depression than was ever there before. Um, it was just a century ago that people thought that Riding in railway cars disrupted life and gave everybody neurasthenia because they were you know, traveling too fast and going too far, and that was causing all kinds of anxiety and depression. And even the Romans were quite certain that their modern society uh, was causing all kinds of upset. Uh, I think this is an illusion that comes from a very simple source. It is that we tend to forget the bad times, and and we tend to remember other times, and as a result, Um, it always seems to us that now is worse uh, than times in the past. Um, Good research still needs to be done, and I am seriously worried about social media. I wouldn't discount the possibility that comparing ourselves to idealized images of bodies and minds and lives on television and and media and, and social media, that might make Lots of us feel bad about ourselves. Um, But I think a more fundamental issue is the structure of our lives and what it is we're trying to do. And especially, you know, everywhere you turn, especially in the educational systems, everyone is encouraged to strive to be great. Really? We're all supposed to be great? Um, I think that's just a setup uh, for most people feeling bad about themselves. I, I wish there could be some organization that strives for everybody... Trying to lead good, stable, decent, happy lives uh, instead of striving always for for the golden ring. Um.
0: So cultural values have evolved or changed, and that's a factor we need to look at. Is that what you're saying?
1: Sure is. You know, at every university, um, the provost goes on about how that people need work-life balance, and they say this because a lot of the problems the provost has to deal with are are faculty who burn out and tragic suicides and uh, all kinds of problems that sometimes seem clearly related to you know people not getting tenure or flunking out of school and all kinds of things. But do they really mean work-life balance? Um, when they give awards to people, they don't give awards to people for living balanced lives. They give <laughs> awards to people who are you know, the grand successes, who spent all of their lives uh, doing wonderful work. Uh, so I think if there's something intrinsic about human organizations that tends to try to motivate people to do what's good for the group and to do grand things, even at the expense of our individual
0: lives. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. That's the case. You mentioned something earlier, though, that I, I don't want to lose. I would like to get back to it. Uh, you mentioned a colleague who said, um, why, why does evolution let us age? Why didn't we evolve to live forever? Uh, but my question is really the other side, because since evolution maximizes reproductive success, Why do we live beyond our reproductive years, and why are people living longer and longer, especially women?
1: This is such a good question, and that's, as an undergraduate, I tried to figure out, thanks to an inspirational biology professor, why is there aging at all? And I was especially assuming that most every species would have something like menopause where they stopped aging. And as I got into it, even as an undergraduate, it became clear that Something like menopause was rare. Only a very few species have that. Most of them reproduce as long as they can. So that's really not a factor. And it turns out that George Williams, my mentor and friend, in a 1957 paper came up with a very interesting idea. He suggested that for humans in particular, um, it might be better for your genes to stop your own individual reproduction and to instead start taking better care of your kids and grandkids because there comes a time when more reproduction is dangerous for you. And if something happens to you, your kids and grandkids are not going to survive. So it's probably better to just just quit doing your own reproduction and wait. And that is still a wonderful controversy in evolutionary biology. But the basis of what he was saying is, is based on something called kin selection. And kin selection refers to the fact that all of us can do things that don't help us a bit and are even very harmful to us and our genes and our lifespan, but that help our children and our siblings and any relative, really. This was William Hamilton's genius idea in 1964 uh, called kin selection. And that, that idea really revolutionized the idea of how we understand social behavior, and it combines with George Williams' 1966 book, Adaptation to Natural Selection, where he showed that the idea that natural selection works to benefit groups is just wrong. Um, Natural selection does not act to benefit groups because an individual who did what was good for its own genes uh, would end, pass on more of those genes than others. So the combination of kin selection and the fact that group selection doesn't work completely revolutionized the study of animal behavior and is now revolutioning our revolutionizing our study of human behavior, although humans turn out to be wonderfully more complex, and we could talk about that.
0: Yeah, because we have many societies with a lot of cooperation. Uh, the United States is one of them. Uh, where connections are not primarily or exclusively based on relatedness.
1: That's right. So when I read the Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. and after I read, you know George Williams's book, I was distressed. I thought, oh my gosh, all these years I thought I was doing good and I was just turning out to be doing good things for my genes without knowing it. <laughs> right. And I, th- I think many people who, who read and understand that I, those ideas deeply are appropriately distressed to learn that a lot of what they thought that was moral behavior is just actually benefiting their own genes that happen to be in other people. So I dedicated myself, Rene, for almost 15 years to try to find out how is it that natural selection can shape tendencies for genuine morality and loving relationships. And in my work as a psychiatrist, this proved to be crucial. Uh, the answer, I thought, at first I did a book on something called commitment theory, uh, game theory and, and the like, but but social selection, I think, turns out to be the correct answer. Um, and it is that just as natural selection shapes peacocks to have giant tails because those with the giant tails get more mates, it also shapes individuals to be preferred partners of all kinds, not just sexual partners, but social partners. And so we're all constantly looking over our shoulders to see what other people think about us. And that's such a useful, good thing, because that means we're constantly sensitized to what other people want and trying to please them and trying not to offend them. And this makes us all socially anxious all the time. And we lie in bed at night thinking, oh my God, what did I say accidentally to that person that might have accidentally insulted them?
0: But, and that's and a my, good thing?
1: <laughs> it is a good thing. It is a, I mean, And the way you can tell it's a good thing, there are people who lack this capacity and they're just oblivious. And they go on and on and they talk about themselves and they brag about things and they're just oblivious uh, to their impact on other people. Um, and, they're not people you want as your friends. They're not as they're not people that you want to invite into your group. They're not people you want to hire, and they suffer quite a lot uh, for not having enough sensitivity to social situations. So, in, and I've written several papers just about this. Uh, the idea came from Mary Jane West-Eberhard, uh, an insect biologist who really got this idea started well. Um, But this really offers an explanation for why people do so many things that benefit groups. But it's not because it benefits the groups. It's because it makes you a preferred partner. And the people who are preferred partners get better partners. And because they get better partners, they do better in life and have more offspring. And that shapes these capacities for empathy and capacities for love and loyalty and honesty and and the like. And thank goodness, I don't. it really requires a kind of a tipping point in the history of a species to where it matters, who your partners are in life, who your social partners are. And I think that the tipping point for humans was reached sometime between a million years ago and half a million years ago. But once it gets started, it becomes a runaway process where those individuals who have tendencies that make them good partners, get better and better partners, and everybody else starts competing. Um, in, terms, in fact, there's a lot of evidence of people competing to be more altruistic than other people, which is a wonderful thing. And it's created by the social selection. The penalty, mm. of course, is social anxiety. Um And this is useful in the clinic. I mean, I've treated hundreds of patients with social anxiety, and and it can be a terribly devastating disorder. We see people who can't leave their houses, who can't go to the grocery store for fear someone will look at them in the checkout line, who drop out of school and who take jobs as night watchmen because anything that involves talking with people is just too painful for them. So These are devastating disorders, but they're just an extreme of something that's useful. And as you're doing treatment for such patients, they find it helpful to realize that, no, it's not just a defect. It's something that gives them benefits as well as costs. And I must say it was a delight to treat so many people in anxiety disorders clinics because so many of them are such sensitive, thoughtful people.
0: Right, right. Sensitivity is a double-edged sword. Yep. Um, But – you You talked about moving toward goals, which is a, a fundamental uh, idea, basic biological goals, food, sex, social goals that you just spoke about. Where in your model would you put the kind of uh, character or mood related goals that a lot of people talk about today? I want to be happy, I want to be content. Uh, kind and loving, you you talked about. I want to have better self esteem. That used to be a big one not very long ago. How does that fit into your model?
1: You know, we could talk about the origins of emotions that help us regulate goal pursuit in general, because that's the foundation here. Um, I mean, all organisms, and especially us, we spend our lives pursuing goals. There's something we want to either get or avoid, and we spend a lot of energy trying to get or avoid whatever it is. But there has to be a system to regulate where that energy goes. Uh, do we want to keep pursuing goals that don't work? Uh, some of the most frustrated, depressed people I ever saw in the clinic are those who were you know, just about to get their PhD and realizing that they were never going to get a job in their field. And should they continue another couple of years to finish the degree or not? And what a dilemma to be. And that's something that is caused in modern societies, you know, being trapped, pursuing an unreachable goal. I finally read papers by a fellow named Eric Klinger, who back in 1975 pointed out that natural selection had shaped mechanisms to disengage us from pursuing unreachable goals. First of all, it gets us to pause and try to find a new direction towards our goal. And the goal can be all kinds of things. It's, we, you say goal and it sounds like something like getting a PhD, but it might be trying to stop drinking. It might be trying to get your spouse to want to have sex. It might be trying to stop your kid from using drugs. It might be trying to get a job. Very fundamental kinds of things that people pursue. But what do you do when what you're doing isn't working? Well, first you pause and don't put more energy into something that isn't working. And then you try to find another strategy. But at some point, Eric Klinger pointed out, it's just not going to work. And the best thing to do is nothing, to put your energy some other place. A wonderful psychologist in California, previously German, Jutta Heckhausen, uh, did studies on women who wanted to have children, but were approaching menopause. Now there's a dilemma, and these women were very committed to wanting to have a family of their own by getting pregnant, but they couldn't get pregnant. And she found that you know they became more and more and more depressed as the deadline approached. But then after menopause, when it became clear that they weren't going to be able to reach that goal, their depression, for the most part, evaporated. And this is just such a, a model, I think, for, um, it's not always best to just find try, keep trying and trying and trying. It's so American. It's not just American. It's modern, I think. To, everybody can do everything. Just keep trying, trying, trying. Um, prior to understanding all of this, Renee, uh, I did the standard psychiatrist thing of saying, never give up, don't give up, don't give into your depression, da da da. And that's usually true. Usually depression is is trying to trick you into giving up. But on the other hand, there are other times when you're just not going to succeed at something. And the key to feeling better is to put your energies into something else that's more worthwhile. And ever since then i've I've been much more thoughtful in my responses to patients who are trying to do something that isn't working, uh, trying to get that particular person to marry you or or trying to get into a certain program or trying to get that boss to respect you. There comes a point when it's best to realize that's not going to work um, and that there are other more productive things to do in life and those are some of my most wonderful cures in psychiatry is, is helping certain people in certain circumstances to you know truly give up an unreachable goal and move on to something more productive
0: right and really you're talking about the wisdom of knowing when to hold and when to fold when That's to right. persist and, and when to say this is just not going to work but, but often, don't you think there's
1: something in modern society, Renee, where everybody's encouraged to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying? Well, you can course. do it. You can be. You can be great. All the movies are about people who try, 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 and finally succeed. And that's, yeah, well, that, that's, that's one. Out, that's one out of a thousand.
0: You know. Yeah, and in being a quitter is uh, frowned right. upon. And right. yes, every young child is told, "Try, try, try again until you succeeds. Uh, yeah. But and of the, course, people sometimes who become that's capitalistic- the right.
1: Yeah, the people who become captains <laughs> of industry and, and do succeed grandly tend to be people who, you know, have experienced many reverses and they refuse to give up. And many of them have experienced quite a lot of depression and anxiety as a result of, you know, not following those emotions. So it's I think of natural selection may well have shaped all of us to persist longer than is in our own individual interests, because it's in our genes' interests to try to become the super successful individual.
0: What about the other kinds of things that motivate us besides external goals? Uh, uh, People will do a lot to avoid boredom, for example. Uh, Uh, how, How does that fit into the model? You know,
1: all of psychiatry focuses on anxiety and depression, but there's a dozen other emotions that really should be analyzed as well, both from what happens if you have too much or too little. Mm-hmm. Uh, boredom is painful, isn't it? It's awful. And the, these days, people go to real
0: extremes to avoid boredom. And I,
1: I keep imagining what it must have been like for settlers who had, you know, one candle, no books, and they were sitting out in the prairie all winter long, waiting for spring to come. My gosh, and I guess you could knit or, or you, could, you could talk or play games of, of checkers and things. But these days, boredom is not as much of a problem as it used to be with all of our entertainment. But all that entertainment we have, some, a lot of it seems like fast food, you know? It, it provides a quick satisfaction, but not more depths of satisfaction that we'd get from real relationships with real people doing, doing real things.
0: You, uh, you have a very fine sentence in the book about psychiatry, that it uses only half of biology, uh, and it's a model very different from that in the rest of medicine. Talk about that.
1: So this comes from my work to develop the whole field of evolutionary medicine. Uh, medicine in general um, tries to figure out how things work, what's broken, and how to fix it. And that's the half of the bio of biology that's called proximate mechanisms. It's it's the you whole know, study of you know how things work. But the other question is how did they get that way, and why are they vulnerable? And this turns out to be the absolute center of the field called evolutionary medicine that George Williams and I got going now thirty years ago. And it's simply asking a different question. It's taking an engineer's point of view about You know, not why did this car um, develop vapor lock or some other problem, but why are all cars vulnerable to vapor lock? And this, this becomes a whole new kind of causation of disease. It doesn't fix people quickly. There's no quick fixes here, but uh, there are deeper explanations for why things are the way they are. And it's not just for emotions. I mean, we could talk also about eating disorders and schizophrenia and autism um, and even Alzheimer's disease. I mean, why is it that and so many people almost everybody by the time they're 90 or 100 uh, get some version of dementia from Alzheimer's disease and that's one of your areas of background right I mean it's,
0: it's, it, yeah, you must was. have
1: wondered why did why does it happen to everybody
0: I wondered why it doesn't happen to everybody are, uh, I'm, I'm impressed ahead. by people of uh, 95 who uh, yeah have some memory loss but are completely uh, cognitively intact All right. And so they're I've not written, rare.
1: No, but but the majority of people, uh, once they reach uh, 90, uh, have some kind of cognitive impairment. Yeah, And the rates of Alzheimer's disease itself ra- range up to 50% plus in that age group. And you have to wonder, hey, why didn't natural selection do a better job? Thank you. Um, why is it creating these plaques and tangles of beta amyloid in the brain that are killing off neural synapses and and shrinking the brain um, you know so many so much research has gone into uh, strategies for getting rid of beta amyloid the substance that seems to be inflammatory in the brain and harms neurons and none of them work um, hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into studies trying to get rid of beta amyloid but people hadn't stopped to think about so why does the body make beta-amyloid in the first place? And, and some nice
0: people th- and some people have beta-amyloid and have plaques and don't have impairment. Th- there are some. there are yeah. some. And it has to
1: do with another protein called tau. But the fascinating thing is work um, uh, from a group at Harvard, Tanzian War, and another fellow named Sosi, and they've just demonstrated that beta-amyloid is actually quite a potent antimicrobial. And its inflammation action is not just an accident. It's part of a protective system. Uh, And someone in the center at ASU that I've been affiliated with uh, has done work on the Chimani tribe in Ecuador um, and shown that the gene that makes it much more likely that you'll get Alzheimer's disease, APOE4, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it vastly increases your risk, times four, Um, in modern societies. But in the tribe that he studies, it slows the rate of cognitive decline.
0: Whoa. Interesting. Really? Isn't that fascinating? It it turns out
1: the answer is that cognitive decline in that population uh, probably is a product more of infection. And people who have more um, APOE4, who have, have the APOE4 gene, are better protected from those problems, even though the APOE4 tends to cause inflammation that causes heart disease and Alzheimer's disease. So these are some of the fundamental advances that are coming from evolutionary medicine in general, asking this new question, not just why does this individual get sick, but why are we all vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease and schizophrenia and eating disorders and addiction and all the rest?
0: And since we're talking about old age and... uh things that will get us in the end, heart disease, uh, brain disease, you worked on the largest prospective study of bereavement, uh, a rare opportunities. Uh, t- tell us what you learned about grief and what surprised you.
1: You know, I went into that project, Rene, uh, because I met the head of the research institute I was working at. And he said, blue sky, tell me what you would do if you could do anything. And I said, well, what I'm really curious about is why the capacity for low mood exists at all. And I think the best way to study that would be to find people who never experience low mood and to see what's wrong with them. How do they do badly in life? Because they don't have this normal capacity. And the best way to study that would be to study bereavement and see people who never have bereavement and try to figure out, you know, how their lives are not going so well as a result of lacking that capacity. And he kind of gave me a wry smile and said, what would you do if I told you that the largest study ever done prospectively on bereavement had been completed here and all the data are in the computer, clean and ready to analyze, and everybody who worked on the project has now moved on elsewhere. And I said, oh, damn, I guess I'm going to do a project. (laughs) And and it turned out I was able to get funding and find some excellent statisticians and bereavement experts to help me for a three-year or four-year project where we analyzed all that data and came to remarkable conclusions. Uh, The first one was that a lot of things I had been taught in psychiatry were just plain wrong. I mean, I was taught that patients who had chronic bereavement Mainly had not gotten in touch with their unconscious anger uh, towards the bereaved person, um, that they had an ambivalent relationship. So we looked at our data because we studied those patients, bef- those people, uh, before they ever experienced a loss. And what happened to those people who had an ambivalent relationship with a lost loved one? Answer they had less bereavement than others. Thank you very much. Exactly the opposite <laughs> of what I'd been taught and And I started getting sick to my stomach, realizing I had spent you know weeks and years helping certain patients to try to get in touch with what must have been their unconscious anger, and it was useless at best and and harmful uh, to them. Um, did I answer my question though with this giant study? Did I discover what it was that was wrong with people who didn't have no i didn't um, What we discovered is that there is no one normal way to to grieve. Um, about a third of people aren't phased aren't all that much by losing a load when they, they pretty much go on with other relationships in their, in their life. About a third of people go through a, a period of mourning and sadness and, and the like. Uh, and then a third of people you know, have pretty bad problems that, that persist for quite a while. What's the best predictor of that? It's not the nature of the death. It's not the nature of the person or the relationship. It's whether the person had tendencies to depression ahead of time. So it's it's more person characteristics that influence that than other things. So coming back to my question about what what about those people who never experienced much bereavement? You know what? It's something I discovered once again in this study is that people are not all that consistent. They're very emotional beings, and and a lot of the people who said six months after the loss, um, gosh, it was really awful. I was paralyzed. If you ask them 48 months after the loss, they said, no, no, I was never bothered very much by the loss. I just went on with things. They completely forgot. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it went the other way, too. Uh, Some people who at, at six months said, you know, no. No, I'm not bothered by much of anything. 48 months after, after they said, oh, really? It was terrible for me. Really? I mean, I, and, I, and it was such a lesson for me that people are profoundly subjective, and their memories, you know, they, they re- reconstruct their own lives in retrospect. Um,
0: yes, but, we don't report our lives. We narrate it, and that's it. Yeah, that's
1: right. And we create them and recreate them in the current circumstances. All
0: right. Where do such um, transcendent I- issues, such as spirituality or awe, where do they fit into the model? I, I notice that they're not listed in your list of life domains. That you have.
1: no, they're not I means. I mean religion is is important to people everywhere and always isn't it Yes. um and and it's it provides enormous solace uh for people to find you no know, meaning in things that seem meaningless and to find purpose um that's larger than themselves, larger than society and and all the rest and I think an evolutionary viewpoint can be seen as quite you know enervating or or quite you know corrosive uh, to to those kinds of things. That's one of the reasons why I spent so much time trying to understand how natural selection could actually shape capacities for morality and deep relationships and, and commitment. Because without those, it seemed life really was, you know, just a bunch of organisms trying to reproduce themselves. Uh, so that was very satisfying to to find a good good solution for that. Some people do pursue spiritual goals, and I've seen many patients who... Feel frustrated with their ability to pursue their spiritual goals. They feel they are not believing as much as they should believe. And this be, sets them up for the same kind of problem um, as, as other pursuits of unrealistic or, or difficult goals. And likewise, the pursuit of happiness is such a current issue. I mean, I'm so delighted that positive psychology exists. It used to be that psychology mainly studied negative emotions. But the, the growth of studying positive states of transcendence and drive and, and thriving. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to better understand people and how they go about you know, lives that turn out to be successful in their own eyes and, and the like. On the other hand, I see many people who are desperately pursuing happiness when in fact they're in a sad situation. And that seems to me to be false. And people are pressured to feel happy, try to be happy, and blame themselves if they're not happy, um, I think that's a recipe for unhappiness. Um, And recognizing that the meaning and the value of sadness when it's appropriate um, is terribly important for a balanced life.
0: Or even just accepting it because it will change. Whatever your mood and thoughts are will change. And if you just sit tight and accept it, don't resist it don't insist that you must be happy because it's new year's eve right um, right yeah. <laughs> right There's
1: so many people have written to me saying that the single line in my book that they most appreciate is the line that says and if all else fails just wait just wait <laughs> Uh, Things will change. Things will get better. And in the emergency room with suicidal patients and patients who said they can't go on and like, if only I try so hard to help them get some vision of themselves five or 10 years down the road, um, still alive and with all the opportunities that might be. But people can't see that. And that's one of the mysteries of depression. Why is it that people in some bad circumstances have no vision of themselves succeeding in the further long run? And this is the true distortion that comes with depression. Um, But it also comes somewhat with plain old low mood, with normal kinds of low mood. People just can't believe that they can succeed. They can't believe that things will ever get better. And I'm really mixed, Renee. I, I wish we could get funding to do research to figure that out. Is that a part of the normal, useful part of low mood? Or is that a distortion? that is always harmful. I think it might well be that part of the system that turns off our motivation um, includes making us feel that we're not going to be able to accomplish things. And that's part of the system for stopping us from running around trying to do things that are just going to waste energy.
0: Yes, but that feeling in depression and in, in suicidal depression especially it isn't even just limited to, I can't do anything. It's the feeling of nothing will ever change. This, right. I will always feel this terrible, this unbearable pain. That's And some patients with depression,
1: it's not just them. They envision the entire world um, never, ever getting better. Uh, one patient I describe in the book was a professor who was very depressed and lying in his hospital bed. And he was asking us if we could all smell the smoke. And we said, well, what smoke? He said, can't you see that the entire city has burned? And we looked out the window and the city was still there. And he said, I can see it. There's smoke and it's burning. The whole city is gone. It's never coming back. Everybody's dead. This is a true, serious, psychotic, depressive delusion. But it's remarkably common. So it's just, there's so much fascinating and frustrating. We need to understand depression more, uh, not just from the brain mechanisms, but we need to understand why does the capacity for low mood exist in the first place? How is it regulated? And why the heck is it so often dysregulated? Sometimes because of brain problems, but sometimes because of life situations that people find themselves in where it's really hard to find a way out.
0: Some genetic vulnerabilities are only a problem in modern life. Can you speak to that a bit?
1: Sure can. Um, And this goes back to evolutionary medicine in general. I mean, almost every month, New York Times has a new article about genes found for heart disease. Yeah, but are those genes going to cause problems for everybody and every culture and every age? Uh, Most of them are things that screw up our lipid metabolism because we eat and exercise vastly differently than our ancestors. And if those genes had been so bad for our health over the past half a million years or so, they would have been eliminated. And the generalization that Ken Weiss has come up with, a famous geneticist, is that if you find a gene that's common and has a substantial negative effect on health, it probably is not a defective gene at all. It's probably a gene that was harmless until it began interacting in modern environments. So this is a whole new take on psychiatric genetics as well. Um, There are some disorders that might be different, differently mediated in modern circumstances. Certainly, there are all these new studies on the genetics of eating disorders. And I find them so frustrating because they act like eating disorders is a genetic disease. Uh, Come on, you guys. Yes, eating disorders can be found in every culture, but the mechanism for eating disorders is that people decide they're going to lose weight, and so they decide they're just going to stop eating. And what happens after that? The next thing that happens is the uh, starvation protection response goes off, the evolved mechanism that ensures that people starving find food, get food, eat it as fast as they can. And of course, if someone just decides to stop eating to lose weight, after a few days, they suddenly find themselves staring at an empty half gallon of ice cream, wondering what the heck happened to it. And then they feel so bad about themselves and so out of control that they decide they're going to try even harder to stop eating. And that positive feedback cycle is the essence of what's wrong uh, for people with eating disorders. You know, Going back, it might well have to do with modern media and unrealistic body types and, and sexual competition, not just with 10 other people in your local group, but with millions of other people who are all competing to look the best and, and the like. Uh, but this is a, the whole idea that it's a genetic disease. I mean, that's just so primitive. We really need to be thinking about all of these diseases at all levels together and realizing that lots of the genes that influence mental disorders uh, may well be not defects at all, uh, but things that interact with modern environments or things that push certain traits off to a cliff edge where they're vulnerable.
0: Finally, let's turn the lens away from patients and the general population and on to the psychiatric industry itself. Um, as you and many others have noticed, uh, psychiatry historically Put the burden of pathology on early life, particularly mothers, schizophrenogenic mothers, refrigerator mothers with autism. Um, what are your thoughts about why, despite uh, positive outcomes on the whole, the mental health world is fascinated and still is to a great extent, focused on parenting despite evidence to the contrary? What What do you think is that dynamic?
1: You know, it just seems right, doesn't it? That our, prob- <laughs> our problems were caused by our parents not doing a better job. And and even in my early days as a psychiatrist, when most of my friends were in psychoanalysis, um, we were quite convinced uh, that, you know, our relationships with our parents were the root of all of our difficulties. And guess what? A lot of those people who you know, that said that their parents just weren't loving enough had parents who were depressed and they were depressed too. And guess what? They had the same genes as their parents. So, <laughs> so a, a lot of the explanation for these things turns out to be that parents and children have the same genes. And I think one of the most stunning products of psychiatric research has been to discover that you know, the similarities between children in the same family are almost all products of having the same genes. Not just depression, but intelligence and verbal ability and and you know, sociality and personality. Um, it turns out that those traits, what family you grew up in, it doesn't influence all that much. Now there's got there are exceptions here. If people kids who are terribly abused, you know, that scars them for life and and, and it's terribly harmful. But within the the other range, you know, it turns out to be a whole lot more genes than otherwise. And even for academic attainment, um, it turns out that the higher you go up in the socioeconomic ladder, the more opportunities children have, and the less the influence of parenting and special opportunities. So those parents who sacrifice their double doctor's incomes to get their kids into the best nursery school, um, that nursery school probably isn't going to influence things all that much. On the other hand, at the other end of the socioeconomic levels, especially here in the United States, where we have such terrible diversities and disparities and opportunities, for those kids, um, the proportion of variation that's accounted for by genes is relatively low because the proportion of variation accounted for by different life circumstances is very high. So again, people think very primitively about the role of genetics and, and early life, and you know, it, and if, you know, if globally, maybe we could wrap up on this. I think there's a huge human tendency to think simplistically, I and mean, we all want to find the explanation. So some people say, "Oh, it's it's your brain for everything," and other people say, "It's your early life for everything." Other people say, "It's your crooked thoughts and, and lack of thinking right for explaining everything." I mean, what about the possibility that different things are pathways to different problems for different people? And even the same person with three episodes of depression can have those three episodes for three different reasons. One, because of a bad life circumstance. Uh, one, because of a drug that they're taking. Another, because of simply not getting proper exercise, diet, and and fresh air and sunshine. You know, it, that we shouldn't be just making these global generalizations about causes, but again, the human mind likes to do that, and people tend to get stuck on one thing. Um, so my biggest plea is: is I would I would love to see every psychiatrist and every patient, you know, spend several hours looking in great depth at that individual person's life and the many causal factors that come together to explain their their current situation. And while this is a a lovely dream of mine, there's so many millions of people who need help, uh, and psychiatrists in particular are the experts in prescribing medications. And so inevitably, um, this whole circumstance or the whole uh, professional lives have switched. So psychiatrists mostly are concerned with identifying neurologic problems and trying to prescribe drugs, while other people can provide psychotherapy and investigate other things. I wish it didn't have to be that way but there are strong economic forces that make it that way.
0: Yes, but I support your dream and hope you continue to work to uh, make it a reality. That's a a very important one. Randy? It
1: it is coming along. There there, uh, is a group of uh, over 1,500 psychiatrists in the United Kingdom uh, who have created an evolutionary psychiatry special interest group in the Royal College of Psychiatry. Uh, A lot of them have been inspired by my book, and send the URL for that book is called goodreasons.info. Goodreasons.info gives you information for those who would be interested. It's out in 14 languages, um, so it's it's readily accessible. And I'd love to hear from people who listen to this podcast, because I'm always curious to hear people's reactions.
0: Well, I hope you do get responses, and I'm so pleased that we were able to talk about this important work today. Thank you so much for being on the show uh, and for sharing your important work.
1: Thanks so much, Renee. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.